Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, this is Jay Feldman, the producer of the Bill Press Pod, with a special note that this podcast was recorded before the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill. Here in Washington, D.C., it's about 8.30 in the morning on June 24th. Well, there are weeks here in the capital city where it seems like nothing much happens. This has not been one of those weeks. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol held two gangbuster hearings where we learned the extent to which Donald Trump and his allies pressured fellow Republicans to support their efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. And how much some of them pushed back. The Supreme Court issued opinions that will have far-ranging effects on the social order, including on religion and guns. And the Senate passed a compromise gun safety bill, even as we continue to find out disturbing details about recent mass shootings, including in Uvalde, Texas. Here to discuss these topics and more are Jennifer Haberkorn, covering Congress for the Los Angeles Times. Good morning, Jen. Good morning. Abby Livingston, the Washington Bureau Chief for the Texas Tribune. Howdy, Good. Abby. Howdy. Howdy, y'all. <laughs> and Catherine Tully McManus covering Congress for Politico. <laughs> Howdy, y'all. And Catherine Tully McManus covering Congress for Politico and the author of their Huddle newsletter. Hello, Catherine. Good morning. Well, uh, again, this uh, it, it seems like sometimes we we cover uh, Congress and we're and we're sort of like, okay, this is we're all in just a waiting game, a waiting game, a waiting game, and then all of a sudden. All this kind of stuff happens. Uh, I mean, let's start with the hearings. Um, Jen, I mean, the, the when you're, what was what was the most memorable thing you learned this week from the January sixth committee uh, and and its hearings? Because I had trouble catching uh, keeping up just in you know in real time. I felt I had to write stuff down just to remind myself. Oh yeah, don't forget this part. Yeah, and isn't that unusual for these congressional hearings where usually there is one piece of news, if if you're lucky, <laughs> um, and this was certainly not the case. Um, you know, I think, I think two things. One, that so many members had re- requested pardons. Um, you know, I think we all kind of speculated that was the case, um, but the extent of it was pretty surprising to me. And I think... Secondly, the extent to which the former president was trying to sway the Justice Department. I mean, this is Watergate-level activity, um, you know, which we obviously haven't seen in quite some time. And, um, and, and that was pretty shocking to me. And and Abby, I mean, it seems like the you know Jen mentioned the pardons. Um, you know, so many of the, we got such a convoluted array of of responses uh, from from the folks, the five uh, people who were who were identified as having uh, sought pardons from Mo Brooks to Matt Gates to Scott Perry to Andy Biggs and Louis Gohmert in your uh, home state of Texas. Um, 
where, where do you think, I mean, what, what stood out to you from the way that some of them responded? Cause some said like, Oh no, that's an absolute lie. And then some said, this is an unconstitutional committee, <laughs> which is an odd response. <laughs> well, when you argue about the process, when you don't have a direct argument. Um, and so that's, you know, that's kind of the approach, but this committee, you know, we haven't, seen all the goods too. I mean, there's just, we're just seeing, you know, as, as news people, we know that sometimes when you're presenting something like this, and this is not a news presentation, but like, you know, we put out just 2% of what the information is out there. We find the most important thing and put it out there and it just, they're going to release documents and transcripts and things. And I just think this is just going to continue to build. And so I, I think at some point this is going to overwhelm those sorts of arguments. And I think it has already, I mean, this, the Republican argument on this for so many months and years has been about process. And that's why they don't have, you know, Kevin McCarthy's people on the committee fighting this in public. And so I think that works for many, many things, but it just seems like the sheer volume of evidence involved in this is going to overwhelm those sorts of, uh, uh, responses. And, and Catherine, uh, uh, Abby just mentioned Kevin McCarthy, uh, not putting, uh, his, pulling his picks, uh, from the committee after Nancy Pelosi put the kibosh on a couple of them. Uh, we saw that the president, uh, the former president, Donald Trump, has, is now criticizing Cap, uh, Kevin McCarthy for that decision, uh, which seems to be an escalation in their on-again, off-again, uh, sometimes antagonistic relationship. Oh, Kevin, my Kevin. That's <laughs> what I always say when Trump called him my Kevin. Some days he is, some days he isn't. Um, I think that what we found this week that was interesting was the bind that that put the rest of the House GOP caucus in, you know, kind of between a rock and a hard place between their uh, conference leader, Kevin McCarthy, and their presumptive presidential nominee, Donald Trump, and trying to them trying to toe this line this week. You know, we trust Kevin's decision, but of course the president can have thoughts. This is so personal to him, things like that. Uh, this, this threading of the needle. Um, and to what Abby said about the continuing investigation, I've been really struck this week, just that so many people outside of Washington that I talk to see these hearings as the grand finale, but chairman Benny Thompson and the rest of the panel are very clear that this is not the finale that they are still investigating. They are still bringing people in for depositions, for questioning. They are still receiving documents. And um, I think the timeline of this is all interesting to me because if the outside world is maybe viewing this as the, as the grand finale, what kind of reception does the eventual big blockbuster report get? Um, and how close to the election will that be? Will people digest that and have it have any impacts on the midterms? Um, or is this what most, you know, regular Americans who are not making a living watching every moment of these discussions, uh, is this what they're going to take away from it? Right. And, and Jen, I mean, one thing that is happening outside of the committee that, you know, is, is showing some of its effect or at least showing, you know, it, is amplifying what's going on outside is that uh, Jeffrey Clark, who was this uh, Justice Department lawyer who uh, Trump wanted to elevate to the acting attorney general, um, you know, several members of the um, 
uh, of, of the witnesses panel, uh, Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Donahue and so forth, they all were were saying how unhappy they would be, how, how they would resign in mass uh, if if Clark, uh, who had amplified the the, the former president's uh, claims about election fraud, was elevated. And the the uh, FBI raided his house <laughs> earlier this week in the middle of all these hearings happening. Yeah, which I think only goes to show to Catherine's point that this is going to continue, that um, this these hearings are not the end of the process. Um, if anything, they may have spurred more tips, you know, to the committee and spurred more um, action. And so I think we're going to be hearing a lot from the January 6th committee, um, you know, even after these uh, hearings end this month. And, um, you know, they, this, this report, whenever they do put it out, um, is going to be, is going to be fascinating. Um, I'm kind of curious why they have put some of these hearings in daytime when most people are not watching TV and some of them in prime time and kind of how they've orchestrated that and how they will continue to do so. I mean, most people now, you know, unless it's your job, like all of us, they're not watching the entire hearing, but they're seeing the most important clips on you know, YouTube or TikTok or wherever the kids are watching, you know, <laughs> clips these days. Um, but, uh, you know, if you see that 30 second clip, you know, of some of the dramatic witnesses we've seen, that could be really compelling, um, uh, really compelling information. And um, so I, I think I think this committee has already gotten a lot of praise for how they've handled the distribution of information. And um, I'm curious to see how that's going to continue. Abby, one of the things that we learned yesterday, again, in the middle of the hearing, uh, it, it was ongoing. We received this uh, missive in all of our inboxes that Mo Brooks, uh, the Alabama congressman who was at the January 6th rally uh, and told people you know, that they were going to kick ass and take names, uh, and uh, he, he ran for the uh, Senate seat of retiring uh uh, Senator Richard Shelby. He lost a runoff on Tuesday. Uh, at one point, Trump endorsed him. Then he unendorsed him, and he said that he had gone weak on him. So Mo Brooks lost. And then a couple days later, he says, "You know, I'll testify. Uh, I mean, I, I have a list of demands that need to be met, which it, it's unclear what the committee is going to do with that list of demands." But Mo Brooks, uh, you know, spurned by by Trump, uh, has has said, "Like, hey, I'm willing to talk about this." And he's one of the ones who allegedly sought a, a pardon. Uh, is is this just getting almost too Shakespearean here? What I was struck with yesterday, it just felt different from every other day since this happened. Um, and Mo Brooks was part of it. And it was just this sense of news was breaking in every direction on this same topic. There was the 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 FBI visit to um, uh, Clark's house and all. I mean, just as the hearing's going and it's one of those, you know, sometimes in news we do get those days where you're sort of whipping your head back and forth. But it just felt like after a year and a half of stonewalling, things the, that wall is starting to crumble and that people are coming out. And so my question is, is this an aberration? Is this maybe a spurned candidate who um, is ready to go talk? Or is this something bigger? Are people becoming more frightened? And just one other thing, I just thought it was absolutely back to the pardons 
so interesting that Adam Kinzinger was the one speaking at that point and making that point because he used to be one of those guys. I mean, he still is a Republican, but he was very much a mainstream member of the Republican conference. And I'm going to bet a lot of listeners did not know who he was before this, um, before January 6th. And it was a Congress, a Republican congressman naming other or presenting other Republican congressmen and shaming them. And so I just, I think it's an example of this committee. We've all watched committee hearings that are so undisciplined, silly, um, indulgent on members of Congress giving speeches that just nobody wants to hear. The discipline and strategy of this has been so striking to me. And and also, um, Catherine. I mean, it, it's it's worth noting that I mean, as Abby said, it was Kinzinger who's you know he's he's in the military. <laughs> I mean, he's a mainstream Republican as you get, kind of a straight arrow guy. Everybody he was talking to was also a Republican. Uh, these were all political appointees of Donald Trump or White House aides. <laughs> you know, people who worked in the White House or in the Justice Department, all in the employ of of Donald Trump. I mean, it was all Republican on Republican uh, interactions. Absolutely. And I think some of what we're seeing here is, of course, people coming forward and, and speaking out about what was happening in the days leading up to January 6th and on January 6th. But I think it's also important to remember like how discordant the Trump White House was. It was constant infighting, constant uh, people sectioning themselves off, pitting themselves against each other. Um, and as dark and serious as these hearings have been, there was like a, a literal laugh line yesterday, which was having the DOJ's Donahue say to Jeff Clark, like, you're an environmental lawyer, we'll call you when there's an oil spill. Like just that, <laughs> <laughs> like, like this is a constitutional issue. Like <laughs> you don't belong here. Um, and that is like, uh, to me, that brought me back to the Trump years where you would just be hearing about, you know, Ivanka and Jared being pitted against, you know, Jeff Sessions being pitted against whoever else um, in the administration. And I don't see this as a continuance of that palace intrigue, uh, but a much more serious uh, development of these internal relationships. I, I do have to admit that when I, I heard the, uh, the the Donahue will call you an oil spill line, I not only laughed, but I also thought of a line from my favorite movie, The Big Lebowski, where Walter tells Donnie, you know, shut the F up, Donnie, you're out of your league. <laughs> so just imagine these moments. Um all right, we, we could probably make this entire podcast about the January 6th hearings, but other stuff did happen. Like, again, a reworking of the entire social order, uh, particularly around religion uh, and its interaction with schools, uh, a, a possible, uh, in, in, you know, sort of, uh, you know, some of the barriers between church and state being um, toppled and also a, a gun rights case from the Supreme Court. Uh, let's let's start with, uh, you know, on Tuesday, Monday was a federal holiday, so there were no Supreme Court orders. On Tuesday, we were, you know, we had a, a handful of, of those orders, the most significant of one coming from a case stirring from a main school district uh, where the 6-3 majority ruled that a, uh, that, that the, you know, 
vouchers could be used in a religious school where they had been prohibited before in Maine. Uh, that was just sort of the tip of the iceberg. Uh, uh, Jen, did this did this get lost, uh, you know, in the in the conversations because so much was going on that this is a, a arguably one of the more significant religious rights cases that would that has that the Supreme Court has ruled on. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, to your earlier point, there was a lot going on this week, and of course, everyone is waiting for the Supreme Court's abortion decision. So this did not get a ton of attention, but it is a it is a pretty big deal, um, and. You know, I thought it was interesting that Roberts joined with the other conservatives in this case. Um, you know, there's uh, the, the draft opinion in the abortion case that um, uh, Politico published uh, about a month ago now showed that Roberts might not be siding with the conservatives in that case. Um, and, of, of course, he's shown in the past that he's you know, been willing to not side with the conservatives, but in this case, he, you know, came back to his roots and um, signed on with a 6-3 majority. But yeah, this, uh, I mean, the merits of this case are a big deal and could have implications for um, religious and public education throughout the country, as well as, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, idea of separation of church and state and whether this newly armed conservative majority is going to push the envelope on that issue in ways that we haven't seen before. And Abby, uh, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about the, the gun uh, bill, the gun safety bill, waking its way through Congress. But uh, another uh, big case uh, that came out yesterday, a big opinion that was released yesterday by the court, uh, struck down a century-old New York City uh, uh, a restriction on who could conceal carry, who could, who could, you ha- previously you had to, uh, state a reason and, and demonstrate a good reason, uh, that you feared for your safety in applying for a concealed carry permit to, in New York city. And the court said, Nope. <laughs> uh, is, is there a, a certain irony that this is happening, uh, at the same time that we're, we're the Congress, you know, not known for its, uh, alacrity, uh, in, in, in addressing public ills, uh, is is struggling to deal with a spate of mass shootings. You know, I I had that same exact thought this morning as I was preparing for this, and I think it kind of actually tax. And we can I'll, I'll briefly touch on this because I know we're coming back to sort of the worldview of John Cornyn on the Senate side, who's pushing the gun bill, which is he's about keeping, and I'm using his language, keeping guns away from dangerous individuals. But he supported he would not support anything that infringed upon the rights of law-abiding citizens. That's his language. Um, But bigger picture, I was just kind of thinking about this yesterday, just with all these Supreme Court rulings and all this other news. Someone earlier this week tweeted a screenshot of a Texas newspaper on the day of the Roe v. Wade decision. And it was also the day Lyndon Johnson died. And the whole paper front page was almost all Lyndon Johnson articles, which makes sense. It was a Texas paper. He was a consequential president. And Roe v. Wade got one small story. And, you know, which event, when we look back in the scope of history, as great of a figure as LBJ was, you know, had the more relevance now. And I just, I'm just curious what this week that we didn't focus on, which will be the small story, could end up even more consequential than anything we're thinking about and focusing on right now. It's just, that's the scale of the news we're dealing with right now. Absolutely. Um, Catherine, Democrats said that they were going to uh, introduce legislation to address, you know, somehow the the, the court's gun ruling. But we've seen this before. Uh, I mean, do you think that there's any chance that they'll they'll go further uh, than than just where they've gone? They've decided to go even this week. 
I think while Democrats, you know, will talk about the path that they want to go down to, you know, eliminate assault rifles and and rein in a lot more of, uh, you know, gun ownership, age restrictions, magazine restrictions going down the line. Many this week are pretty resigned that this compromise, which absolutely does not reach those outer limits of what Democrats would like to implement on firearms in this country, they understand that this is the most major gun legislation in 30 years. And we might be looking at another generation before uh, anything else has changed. Uh, but of course, they're going to try. Uh, these types of restrictions are introduced almost every Congress. They have to give it a try, even when the political reality is there's no way that an assault weapons ban was making it through a 50-50 Senate. If you had talked to almost anyone on Capitol Hill three weeks ago, I don't think they would have told you that this deal that is set to pass the House today and pass the Senate last night was possible. Um, and I think they are cognizant of the fact that they are setting up more and more um, Supreme Court fights as they continue to push this issue on gun violence and mass shootings. I think the thing that struck me about the New York decision is uh, the Buffalo shooting, the racist attack on the black shoppers at a grocery store in Buffalo, like has really been overshadowed, I think, by the Uvalde, Texas school shooting. And uh, just for that decision to come down about a New York state law just weeks after um, all those people were killed in a racist attack, I think really like highlights a kind of whiplash that I, that especially Democrats are feeling. They want to celebrate this compromise today, um, but then also they are so uh, disappointed by the Supreme Court's decision and rocked by the continued violence across the country. Yeah, and we're we're going to get a little bit more into the gun safety legislation. There's more to talk about there, uh, but we're going to take a short break here on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill, along with Jen Habercorn, Abby Livingston, and Catherine Tully-McManus. Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW. Under President Mark Perrone, they service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods. Those on the front line and our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work taking care of all of us Americans, and we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Go to their website, check it out at ufcw.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back on the Bill Press Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill, along with Abby Livingston from the Texas Tribune, Catherine Tully-McManus from Politico, and Jennifer Habercorn from the Los Angeles Times. Um, I, this, I, I, I think that, you know, again, we're, we're trying to keep, you know, like all these things straight, you know, the Supreme court gun ruling and, and, you know, the, the legislation that's moving through, uh, Congress and is likely to be passed by the house uh, a little bit later on today. I mean, I, I just, Jen, it's, it's hard to overstate as Catherine said, you know, right before we went to break that this is the most significant gun safety legislation in, in decades. Uh, I mean, it's, it's so significant that Chris Murphy, uh, is the lead, you know, item in the, in the New Yorkers talk of the town. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't happen that often. The, the, one of the lead proponents along with George Cor- John Cornyn, uh, from Texas of getting this legislation over the, over the finish line in the Senate. I mean, uh, we, like, I, I just want to play this, this clip that we have of Sherrod Brown, uh, gaveling in the vote, uh, just, just sort of, sort of effect because it's this just doesn't happen that often with gun uh, legislation. The yeas are 65, the nays are 33. The motion to concur with an amendment is agreed to. I mean, 65 votes, they were worried. I mean, the the, the number was 10 that they kept on focusing on. Could they get 10 Republicans uh, so that they could evade a, a filibuster? But they not only got 10, uh, they, they got more than that, including the Senate minority leader, Mitch McConnell. It's certainly a huge deal. I mean, when you think about how little this um, – how little Congress actually has gotten done in the last few years when it comes to the most controversial issues. Um, this is an enormous um, achievement for those who were, were were looking for Congress to do something on guns. I think we also have to keep in mind that, you know, the, the bar for deals on controversial issues is pretty low for Congress. And so to be able to do something is is really significant. And I think it also, you know, Catherine kind of touched on this. It also reflects, um, you know, just how significant these recent shootings were and how jarring and um, terrible they were that really forced both parties to put down their swords. I mean, for progressives, after all this time of, you know, spending the last two years talking about, you know, they're not going to accept anything less than what they want on, um, you know, uh, voting rights and uh, so many other issues. And for Republicans, a a small group of them, of course, to come to the table and say, we're willing to do something that our opponents are going to say is um, infringing on Second Amendment rights is really a big deal. And, um, you know, I think all of that is reflected in the fact that they actually got a bill done. And this is the first time in in three decades that we're talking about gun legislation making its way through Congress. And, and Abby, uh, I, you know, John Cornyn's name keeps coming up because he was the, you know, took the lead for the Republicans and finding out what was possible. Um, You know, some of the folks who initially joined in were, were people who are retiring like Pat Toomey, who's been working on, uh, you know, worked on background checks bill that did, that never, you know, sort of made it over the finish line with Joe Manchin, you know, eight, nine years ago. Um, you wrote a, a great story recently. Uh, you know, I think the, the headline was between an A plus NRA uh, rating 
and the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Um, talk about the the spot that Cornyn is in, because as he was, even as he was in the midst of of you know helping construct a compromise that could get sixty, eventually get sixty five votes um, in in the Senate, he was booed at the state Republican convention in Texas, and he doesn't have to face the voters for uh, until uh, you know twenty twenty six. But I mean, this this is a significant. Uh, thing that on one hand he's doing what he thinks is he has to do for the the country and the state, and then on the other hand the the people who are closest to his political apparatus are booing him. Yeah, <clears throat> so I think John Cornyn right now is at the peak of his political powers, at least in this stage of his career. Um, if you go back and look at his primary, he did better in the Republican primary in 2020 than he did in 2014. I think you can look back in 2020 and say his, the way that he ran his campaign, he is not a superstar. He's not a supernova in politics, but he's stable. He probably saved a lot of U.S. House seats for the GOP, and he could well have saved Texas for uh, Donald Trump. I mean, Biden came pretty close. Uh, this was a long time ago, but he came close. Um, so I think back in, te- I mean, he's got a long time. He's got five years to go before he's up for re-election, and that is an eternity in politics. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of immediate backlash in his domain of Texas. Mm-hmm. I think what's curi- what I'm curious about, and again, it's a far ways off, is wh- what this impacts a future GOP Senate leader race, because he's obviously a contender. But I think this, I, the whole time I was watching this, I just kept wondering, why is he doing this? Because there's no political upside. And we so rarely see people not make, it's the easy choice politicians make. And the easy choice in this for a Republican politician was to not do anything. And a lot of Republicans did that. But he threw himself into this texting, calling. Um, he, I, I was sort of just amazed at what strong relationships he had with Murphy and Cinema, which I, I vaguely known about, but I mean, these are emphatic trust between these people. And um, I I think the common thread between uh, Murphy and Cornyn, I mean, I guess you could say this about almost every senator, but, um, and you can throw cinema in that a little bit. But um, if you go to the congressional baseball game, some years, Chris Murphy wears a new town jersey. John Cornyn's had Sutherland, Springs, El Paso, Dallas, Santa Fe, um, Uvalde. I'm going to forget some. There's been so many in Texas. And I think these are people with broken hearts. Cinema was a state legislator, but there was Tucson. Um, and so I, I just think it has gotten to people, uh, some of these senators to a point. And I think one other thing about the vote count, and one of the things I learned during my years at roll call, you always put people in danger when you get just enough to pass the bill, because then everybody who voted for it becomes the deciding vote in television advertising. So Cornyn hitting 65 helps protect other Republican senators from the political fallout. There's more, it's, it's not just that a few outliers cross party lines. It's more than a few. Absolutely. And on the other side of the Capitol where, you know, the house is, is considering this and, and they will send it to the president's desk. I mean, Nancy Pelosi only has to get one more vote. Uh, she doesn't have to worry about a filibuster or things like that. Catherine, what we saw yesterday was that the Republican leadership, uh, uh, and, and particularly Steve Scalise, the, uh, minority whip uh, advised a, a, a no vote on this legislation. Uh, I mean, do, do we, in in terms of like what's the like what's the calculus there for House Republicans uh, that they you know kind of fly in the face of what is going on at the other side of the Capitol? I think that House Republicans and Senate Republicans are increasingly at odds. Frankly, um, 
there's just a different calculation and and also you have a lot more leeway in the house to buck your party it's not a 50 50 split of course um i think that something that mitch mcconnell said last night helped me understand this divide which is he focused on he said this is voting for this was a political calculation he sees this gun bill as helping Republicans in the suburbs. He said, we own rural and small town America. We're losing ground in the suburbs. And this is a, a, a narrow compromise that will be popular there um, and can help them make up some of that suburban ground as we head towards November. Um, that stuck out to me. On the House side, that people are anticipating, you know, maybe a dozen or two dozen uh, Republican votes, if that. But the whipping against it, they get to draw a hard line, and Republicans in the House are that all of this is a violation of the Second Amendment in their mind. They are talking about even at the Rules Committee meeting this morning. They have been talking about uh, this bill creating a, a basically a database of gun owners, which it is absolutely not what this bill would do. Um, but that is the kind of language they're using. And uh, the preemptive nature of a red flag law uh, where someone's guns can be removed if they are determined to be a danger to themselves or others, um, which a key reminder in that calculation is that suicides are a huge part of gun deaths in this country. It is not just mass shootings. Um, that kind of preemptive nature is something that is really ruffling feathers among House Republicans and is causing them to put a hard no. The Freedom Caucus came out like within an hour, I think, of the bill being released saying, absolutely not. Uh, this is way outside what they're willing to vote for um and leadership followed suit as will the vast majority of republicans in the house today well uh there this has been a really great conversation there we we just sort of grazed the surface i feel of of the, the biggest stories of the week uh and there's a lot more going on uh but we are going to wrap it up uh at that point uh but before we go uh, i want to thank i'm jason dick editor-in-chief of cq roll call i've been sitting in for bill along with jen habercorn abby livingston and Catherine tully mcmanus uh before we go it is time for your favorite story of the week this could be uh something outside of politics outside of our uh day jobs the things that uh our colleagues in the press and the media have have done which have uh you know sort of caught our eye jen uh why don't you go first Okay, so my story is from the New York Times Magazine, and the headline is Inside the Push to, to Diversify the Book Business. Um, clearly, this is not a political story, but um, I found it really interesting. Um, the headline kind of explains uh, <laughs> what, what it's about, um, uh, but it, it, it dives into the, you know, very white nature of book publishing in the past and the folks who are trying to open it up to um, new authors and thus new uh, readers. Um, I found it interesting. And uh, that's my story. All right. Uh, Abby, how about you? My favorite story is a Tribune story from earlier this week by my colleague, Terry Langford. And um, Terry is very well known in Texas. Um, and I, my first day at the Tribune, I watched her work the phones and it was a sight to behold. And 
it, this has been a moment where she's an editor, but she sort of put on the reporter uniform and she met the moment. And she came out with an extraordinary report earlier this week laying out the timeline of Uvalde and the inconsistencies. And it was just, it was something, I mean, we it's hard to have bombshells in this environment because there's so many, but it, it was just an extraordinary report of the timeline of Uvalde and the police department. And I recommend everyone go find Terry's story. All right. And Catherine, your favorite story of the week. Mine is not so generous because it's one that my colleague happened upon, but we witnessed this week an incredible reunion in the speaker's lobby right outside the House chamber where Republican Congressman Peter Meyer of Michigan came out of the chamber to ask a Capitol Police officer, hey, did you serve in the Army? And they realized that they had served together in the army um, and had last seen each other in 2015. It was a chance encounter back at the Capitol. And Meyer recognized him, uh, Chow, Albert Chow is the Capitol Police officer, and he joined Capitol Police in 2018. He thought that he had recognized Peter Meyer a couple weeks earlier, but had no idea that his former army colleague had been elected to Congress at all. He had no idea. And this week they embraced and caught up through a very long vote series in the House. Um, And it was, I mean, truly heartwarming in a town that is not known for its heartwarming stories, for sure. And sometimes the Capitol feels like a hopeless place. But watching uh, two guys who, you know, bonded over their military service together come together years later when they've both landed in different professions was amazing. That's awesome. Um, my, uh, my story is a little odd. Um, I, I, I sought refuge in an old book. I have, uh, as, as, as some of you know, from working with me, I have a book problem, but these books, uh, do provide me with some solace sometimes. And I picked up a compilation of old wall street journal, a heads or middle column stories and was sort of has been, have been reading through that this week. It's been nice to kind of go back sometimes 20, 30, 40 years to see these uh, quirky stories that are almost, they're like custom made for this part of the Bill Press Pod <laughs> Reporters Roundtable. Uh, and the one that really I just absolutely love and I'm still giggling about it uh, is from September 1998. It's called The Lost Art of the Comb Over, Moving Hair from Here to There uh, by Jeff Bailey. And it is an amazing story about how the the, the rise and fall of the comb over, uh, you know, tracing it from Julius Caesar uh, to to uh, the the house barbershop uh, in the in the capital and how it has gained favor uh, and, and reached its peak, according to Bailey, with Zero Mustel in the 1968 Mel Brooks movie, The, the Producers, uh, and has fallen to its depths now uh, at, at the time, 1998, uh, Sam Donaldson uh, would not say whether he had a rug or was just doing a, a very advanced comb over. Uh, of course, we were treated to uh, the resurgence of the comb over with uh, the former president, Donald Trump. But that's a story for another time. <laughs> anyway, this is a, a very fun story. If you have a Wall Street Journal subscription, uh, I highly recommend <laughs> revisiting this story. It's amazing. Well, that's going to do it. Uh, that's a wrap for this edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Our thanks to you, our listeners. Uh, and thanks to Abby Livingston from the Texas Tribune, Catherine tony manis from Politico, and Jennifer Habercorn from the Los Angeles Times. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill. Thank you for listening to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. <laughs>